Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where we have a variety of topics covering a breadth and depth of interests that are relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now here's today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. We are going to have an exciting conversation here. If you were list, had the opportunity, rather, to hear what was going on in the green room before we flip the switch live here, you would know that this is one you're going to want to lean into, tune into, and have your pad and paper out to capture those aha moments. Actually, not pad and paper. Pad of paper and two pens. And that's two pens because one might break on you or your cat might run off with one of them. Just when you're wanting to write something down, you don't want to miss a thing. This is going to be awesome. Our guest today is going to share with us on a topic called Challenge Accepted, Running a Successful Business with a Disability. And this is somebody that I have wanted to get on Business Creators Radio for a long time, and we've finally been able to make it happen. Her name is Steph Green. She's a multi-six-figure and USA Today best-selling author of over 40 paranormal novels. She's a beloved speaker traveling the world to talk about how authors and entrepreneurs can tell their stories and build a badass career. I can tell you a few other reasons I like Steph. She loves cats, which is awesome. Uh, she has an inspiring story from being legally blind and completely colorblind. So you could say that her world is literally 50 Shades of Grey. Now, we're not going to be getting into any kinky fuckery here because this is, after all, a business podcast, but you are going to enjoy an, an interesting perspective on this from somebody who does things like write gothic and paranormal romance uh, and who is also obsessed with heavy metal and travels all over the world to see her favorite brands. As you can tell, quite a character, and we're all going to have a lot of fun. Steph Green, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. As always. Absolutely. So what we like to do here at the Business Creators Radio Show, I know there are some folks who are leaning in right now. They've got a separate browser tab open. They're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles, looking for Steph Green, whose website, by the way, is, notice I mentioned a heavy metal a moment ago, RageAgainstTheManuscript.com. Very interesting website. Steph, what we'd like to do is take a step back before we get into what you're going to share with us about running a successful business with a disability and discover more about you and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion, making a difference for your community, market, and audience. And based on what you shared with me earlier, I know this is going to be very interesting. So take it away. Awesome. I'm so excited to get stuck into this. Okay, so <laughs> I guess um, to start from the very beginning, um, I am, as Adam said, I am legally blind. Um, my The condition I have is called achromatopsia, and it's genetic, so I've had it my entire life. I will never get better. I will never get any worse. So 
that's kind of nice, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't see any colours at all. Um, I Basically, my eyes have... Everyone's eyes are supposed to have rod cells and cone cells, and you use your rod cells at night as your night vision and your cone cells during the day, and you're supposed to have millions of each of them, and I've got some rod cells, but I've got no cone cells whatsoever. So during the day, I'm using my rod cells. Um, so it's kind of like walking around in the dark and then suddenly someone turns on a light and you're like, ah, oh, no, I can't see. Yes. So that's kind of my life. And <laughs> yes, and I kind of like, I fall downstairs quite a lot because I can't, I have a lot, a lot of trouble seeing depth perception and I'm severely, severely short-sighted to the point where I'm considered legally blind which sort of basically means I can't drive I can't fly an airplane um, although maybe one day um, I will do that <laughs> yes um, and growing up <laughs> yes that would be that, that so anyone who wants a, um, a legally blind person to uh, come and fly the airplane for them just give me a holler um, I'm, so, I'm there come on down I, <laughs> So, uh, growing up, I, you know, I was always kind of, I was this blind kid, um, you know, in, in kind of live in New Zealand where everyone's really into sport and I couldn't play sports. So, you know, kids thought I was really weird anyway. And then, you know, on top of that, I was super obsessed with ancient Egypt and dinosaurs. And my dream from the age of about uh, seven was to be an archaeologist. And so I went to university to be an archaeologist and I spent uh, a number of years studying archaeology and learning how to read hieroglyphs and all these really, really useful real world skills like that. And then I got out of university and I tried to find a job. And that's where I ran into my first kind of first kind of reality check, I guess, um, in that it was very, very hard to, I, I'd done all this work in university, I'd done all this volunteer work on excavations and working in museums and things like that. And then when I tried to get people to pay me to do this work that I knew I could do really well, uh, they would say things like, you know, you're a health and safety risk. Um, we just, we don't trust you around artifacts. We just, you know, we, we can't hire you. Like you can totally keep working for free, but we can't hire you. And I, had gone through this for about 18 months and I had one incident that was particularly bad and I came home in tears and my husband uh, it was my boyfriend at the time he's now my husband he sort of said to me well you could kind of look at this in a couple of different ways you could keep pushing and keep trying to get people to hire you to do this thing that you know you can do but they don't think you can do so you can keep trying to go that way or maybe you could say well actually I've done archaeology you know I got to work in all these cool museums and you went to Greece and you know dug up lots of stuff and you know you could say you've, you, you've done archaeology and so what would be something that you would like to do that wasn't a thing that people could tell you you can't do it and when I was thinking about that the first thing that immediately came to mind was I would love to be a writer 
which is something I have done my whole life as I've written stories and illustrated them. And you know, I wrote, actually wrote four, uh, wrote and finished four novels in high school. Um, they were yeah. All ter- yeah, they were all terrible, but I, I did it. So, you know, that was always something I imagined myself doing. And I thought, well, that's what I would be. I would be a writer. And the thing was, I had no idea how writers actually earned a living or, you know, what they actually did. So, I did what any self-respecting millennial would do, and I Googled how to make a living as a writer, and I tried all the things that Google said that you could do. So I wrote, like, websites um, for, uh, like, heavy metal bands, and um, I did a big website for a gothic corset company, and I I started a blog about heavy metal, and, uh, you know, I wrote articles for magazines, and I dragged a novel that I'd been working on in university out, and I started polishing it up and sent it off to a publisher, and, yeah, and I I spent about five five to eight years working doing freelance work as a writer and um, trying to get this novel and other novels published and it took eight years of work with this particular publisher and finally they called me and they said they kept saying you know we love you we love you we really want to publish you but it's just not this book it's not this book it's not this book and finally they called and said yep this is it it's this book we're going to give you a three book deal um, you're going to be you're going to be a published author, and I was like, oh my god, you know, dream come true. This is amazing. And then what happened was my editor at this publishing house, um, she decided to retire, and she was my big champion at this particular publishing house. And they decided that her retirement meant that it was probably time they kind of took a look at her list and they cut it in half. And so they cut a number of her authors and I was one of the authors that got cut. So I had been working for oh, no. many years, yeah, many years, nearly a decade towards this goal. And suddenly it had been ripped away and it felt a lot, it felt a lot like back in those days when you know all those people were telling me you can't do this you can't do this it felt like someone saying you can't do this all over again and although this time it was not because i couldn't see it was because you know it was the story that meant an awful lot to me and yeah and they rejected it and it's like you know it's like they rejected you and uh, you know it's it's hard it's always hard for writers and so i was kind of looking at having to start this whole process all over again and at the same time, authors online were starting to talk about the Kindle and about self-publishing through Amazon and, you know, finding all these readers who were reading on the Kindle. And my husband also bought me a Kindle. And I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, this is amazing because I can, I can actually carry around books and read them in large print and they're not heavy because I have to hold them right up against my nose. I literally read books with my nose yeah. um and um yeah and I, so I had to hold them right up close and I thought oh you know this is amazing this is such a cool device and so I started thinking well you know the self-publishing thing's starting to sound like you know might be a might be a good idea so I self-published the first series that I that the publisher rejected um it did terribly I you know I think I sold 100 copies to all my friends and that was basically it but I was so addicted to it I it's just so much fun. Um, and that was a very, very serious uh, science fiction series. 
And that's yeah. what I thought I was. I thought I was a very serious, yeah, science fiction author. And then I went to a party. And this was right when Fifty Shades of Grey came out. And a friend at the party was talking about the books and how much she loved them. And I had read a chapter and I thought they were terrible. <laughs> and so I was kind of mocking them and I was saying, Oh, it's awful. And it was, you know, yeah, I was, I was being mean and she was a bit sick of me. And so she said, well, it's not like you, you could write a book like that, Steph. And I thought, well, you, you know, I sort of said to her, well, yeah, you're probably right. You know, that's not really me. I probably can't write a book like that. And in my head, I went, well, you know, challenge accepted. So in secret, without telling anyone, not even my husband, I wrote this little, so it wasn't like Fifty Shades of Grey, but it was a, it was a paranormal romance book. It was about a, a wolf shapeshifter uh, who was an artist and, his, and the girl that he fell in love with who was an art curator. And there was, it was like a shift of war and there was some ghosts and there was all this crazy stuff. And it was so much fun. And I wrote this book in about three weeks and I, hired, I made up a pen name and I hired someone to give me a cover for $50 and I put it up on Amazon and I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe in six months time, I'll tell my friend about it and we'll have a laugh. And then what happened was that it sold a thousand copies in a week. And I nice. Went, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was really nice. And I went, oh, well, hmm. And I kind of kept expecting Amazon to call me and say, oh, you know, we've given you the wrong royalties by accident, but they never called and the book kept selling. And I sort of had to tell my husband that I'd made all this money, but it wasn't from this super serious science fiction books I was writing. It was from this, you know, this Fox shapeshifter romance book. And when he'd finished laughing about it, he said, are you going to write some more? And I thought, well, Yes, yes, I am. And so that was 2015, and it's now 2020, and I have written 40 books. Uh, most of them are paranormal romance books. And I publish approximately a book every two months. And uh, in 2018, I had enough readers, you know, clamoring for my work that I was able to quit my job. And so now... Uh, full-time I just write um, wonderful paranormal romance books and I teach other writers how to self-publish and find their readers and create a badass author brand all right um, I love that whole story I myself am a published nonfiction author I am a contributor to journeys to success and millennial edition and I have my own book called Groundhog Day is an event not a business strategy where we expound upon what I call the spring formula for succeeding in business I have been, since the early 1990s, working on a fictional novel about a Central American political leader and how he transforms his society over a generation. This thing keeps changing as I continue to study more and more about history, and I'm pretty much at the point right now where I'm beginning to work on the manuscript of it. The challenge is, is making it actually interesting and not read like a wikipedia article now wikipedia articles fascinate me but i don't know how many people are going to buy basically a wikipedia article about a fictional character so what i'm working on are creating the storylines and the conflicts and having it make sense without having to tell the guy's entire life story from the day he was born till the day he died uh so i'm getting a nice 
real-time education in creating the story in a fictional narrative, which has been, ugh. So based on that, I have to ask you, a new book every two months? I've been working on one for 28 years. <laughs> yes. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't start writing a book every two months you know my first book that I wrote took um the, the book I wrote back in u university took me eight years to write um but you just kind of you just kind of after a few books you kind of get the hang of it and you sort of you start off and you you know where the book's going and you know where it's going to end um you know I, I don't write these things down but I, I just the story is in my head um and so it just feels like it's basically my fingers trying to keep up with my head trying to you know get the story out um and yeah it just it kind of comes with practice um, I my system is that I sit down and I try to write 4,000 words a day so I do 2,000 words in the morning and I take a break and I eat some lunch and I do my workout and then I try for 2,000 words in the afternoon and it doesn't always happen that way but you know if you can get that that's 20,000 words a week if you take the, week, the weekends off which is 80,000 words a month which is you know that's a draft of a book every single month yeah so yeah all right, so I so I have to so I have to ask uh, because again I'm trying to get our give our listeners a feel for how they can do this themselves, uh, whether they're business writers or non-business writers, because I I believe that there may be some crossover tactics. Approximately, how long does it take you to generate four thousand words? And are you writing the story consecutively, the way it would go into the the book itself, or are you writing like blurbs as inspirations come to you? Well, this is this is such an interesting area actually um, all writers are a little bit different but i do use a lot of tactics that i think are really applicable uh, you know to, to all sorts of different people so some of the things i do is sometimes i will write with a timer so i set a timer for 20 minutes and i and i say you know to close on the um, browser tabs and i say this is it 20 minutes i'm just going to focus on writing and i can usually get 750 words in 20 minutes if i really know exactly what i'm talking about or maybe only 400 words but if, if you do that and you get your 400 or your 700 words and then you take a break for a couple of minutes and you come back and do another one you can get nearly 2,000 words in an hour so sometimes if i'm having a really good day i can get my 4,000 words done in a couple of hours and then I can spend the rest of the day reading a book or slacking off or you know um, but sometimes it you know sometimes it takes a bit longer um, like you I do do a lot of research um, although my research topics are very different um, I recently did a book where uh, I had to learn a lot about how people fake their own deaths and which was really interesting and I've spent the last kind of month boring all my friends to tears you know telling them all these facts about how people right. fake their own deaths because i couldn't fit it all in the book um so anyway um so i do do a lot of research um and sometimes it it takes a bit longer so i, I use this timer method where i yeah you know, where i do the 20 minute sprints um i will write down every day the the word counts i get uh, in a sprint or in an hour and you know kind of track it and that really helps me go oh only got 2,000 words for a week, you know, better step up the pace kind of thing. Um, what else do I do? 
I um, I know that I work much better in the morning, and so I try to get as much done as possible in the morning. I try not to sit down and you know look at my email. I just try to sit down and get straight into the book. And I people are very different. You know, authors are very different whether they plan things or we we call it plotting or pantsing. So you know. Do you plot out your books or do you write them on the set of your pants? And I definitely am a pantser. Um, uh-huh. I think if you, I, I feel as though if I, yeah, if I plan the whole book, I have no idea. Uh, uh, sorry, if I plan the whole book, then I already know what's going to happen. And so it's no fun to write it anymore. So I don't want to do that. So I have, so usually for one book, I'll have about half a page where I have some notes of the, the scenes that have popped into my head and how the book how the book's going to begin and how the book's going to end and when i know how the book's going to end it's just sort of nudging everyone in that direction um and i do write more or less consecutively my first draft is super rough it's uh, for a 70 80,000 word book my first draft is 20,000 words and it's rough, it's usually just dialogue and kind of emotional sort of emotional impact of the character you know with emotions the character's going through and just really rough like what's happening in each chapter which is basically basically an outline and then i go back over it and i smooth it out and i make it really pretty and i add in things and i you know yeah write the sex scenes and you know all the fun stuff um yeah and then i I do that sort of about three times and at the end of that i have a book okay yeah i uh while you took the time and generously gave us a detailed answer so i could remember which of my hard drives this was on i uh pulled up my uh my uh sketch of the book, which basically is me telling this guy's life story in chronological order. And we're about um, eight years after he took power, and which is about a third of the way through his tenure as the leader of his country. So we still have a lot of stuff to do. And we're at 34,442 words. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, might have to, might have to, yeah, and I, I, and I, and I'm not sure that people just want to read through chronologically everything. And what I'm wondering is if I even need to necessarily write all that down because a lot of it I know in my head. I mean, remember, I've been, I've been developing this individual in my head for 28 years. I kind of know what his trajectory was, and I also know how the story ends, which is he basically managed to, believe it or not, pull it off. Is how it ends up. It sounds really cool, actually. It, it, so it's quite, kind of quite an inspirational story. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and the message I want to convey is if you want to radically transform a society and create uh, a practical utopia, not one of those uh, woo-woo utopias, but something where you, you look at you know, whatever country you live in. I mean, I'm in the United States of America. I believe in, you're in New Zealand. I am, yes. So we, so we each have differing opinions, and I can imagine because you're in uh, New Zealand, I'm in the United States, we have different national histories, we have different political scenes, we have different social issues. So when we look out there and we say, wow, this would be a much better country and a much better society if our answers to that are going to be different. Uh, so I can only, so I, being an American, I'm transposing an American view to another culture and another society because it doesn't happen in the United States. Now, 
with all that, uh, I also want to make the point that if you want to create one of these things, there are certain factors you have in place. And what it really comes down to is you have to have a blank slate is is one of the points I want to make. So yeah, they say, yeah, let's radically change our society. Let's uh, create a revolution at the ballot box. And we've, I think you've seen in your history, as you've seen in mine, how well that works in reality. Yes. So I, want, so, I, so, I, so I want to make the point is, yeah, if you actually want to get all these things, you kind of have to have a dictator who's not nuts. <laughs> that, that seems really accurate. Yes. So, 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 so one, of, so one of the conflicts I have developed with this guy is, um, on the one, on the one hand, having that level of power, and at the same time, his own history of, for various reasons, which I wove into a story, a feeling that he himself was treated unjustly, and seeing that there are, there are other things that should be part of society that aren't, and having a balance in his mind between basically just wanting to wanting to kick ass versus uh, sticking to his, uh, to his uh, altruistic goals and how that can vary based on what you have to deal with in the real world. It sounds amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think when you're trying to write a, a story like that, it's, it can be really hard with historical stuff, like you said, to kind of avoid this whole, this is so interesting, I really want to put this in, but you've got to kind of bring it back every time to that overarching theme that you want, and also to the, like, you know, the character has to have that character arc, the same way, you know, a book like mine has to have this character arc, you know, the character is flawed, the character goes through this process, they get knocked back, and each time they get knocked back, it's, you know, it's got to do with the flaw that they have, and then in the end they overcome the four and you know that means you know there's a happily ever after of some description even if that means the character realizes that they don't you know didn't quite want what they wanted in the beginning something like that right um, yeah but it's yeah, it's all gonna the character's still gonna go through that arc for the reader to be interested even though uh -huh. there's all this other stuff going on and yeah you've always got to be asking yourself does this, you know, is this the scene or this historical moment, you know, reinforce my arc? And if not, you kind of have to take it out. And it, yeah. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. And, and then one other thing, I know we still have to cover the whole thing about, um, you know, working through this with a disability and everything else uh, for our entrepreneurial listeners. But here's another challenge I run into is candidly, uh, I've developed this character in my mind over the past 28 to 30 years and I want him to win so bad. I mean, I want him to, to win and win and win and win until he gets tired of winning. And then I want him to keep winning some more. So I, it's like, I don't want him to face adversity, but I know it's going to make a better story if he does. Exactly. And I, I mean, we all want, you know, we all want our characters to win in the end, but if, if they, you know, and readers, that's what they want ultimately as well, but they also want authors to be really, really mean to their characters because otherwise there's no story. Um, you know, like if we just, if we just read a book about someone winning every time, all the time we're just gonna throw it against the wall and go oh well that person's really boring yeah and, it's like yeah lucky lucky him yeah <laughs> yeah yeah nice for you you bastard so yeah so none of that so yeah we we have to be really really mean and it's really hard but then you know that you know that 
usually, especially in books like mine, usually they're all the good guys are going to win in the end, and that's kind of you know that's kind of the important thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Steph, so what we've covered here, and we're almost halfway through here, so I think this is a great time to shift gears a little bit, is we've been discussing a lot about things like imagination, creativity, and your own story is a story of perseverance. So how do these things come together uh, and become vital for success? Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I think for me... You know, I was always, I was always a creative person, and when I, especially when I was very young, you know, that wasn't perhaps valued as highly. Like I said, we, you know, I live in New Zealand, we have a real kind of sporting society, so we often value, yeah, kind of sporting prowess and these sorts oh, of yeah. things. That, yeah, that that I, you know, I couldn't really be a part of. Um, and we also have this thing over here called tall poppy syndrome, which is where, you know, when people sort of achieve too much, um, then the society around them kind of goes, oh, they're getting a bit big for their boots. And, you know, we like to be quite, quite, quite quiet about our success. And that can be, that can be hard. Um, and it can be hard for creatives, um, like me when yeah when you kind of feel like what you what you are isn't valued and you add disability onto the top of that and it can be hard but i think you know that's where kind of perseverance really comes in you know if you you know all the the nouns in the world never would have made me a rugby star you know because i can't catch a ball so yeah um, <laughs> so you gotta you know you've gotta if you believe that you know, there's something that you are meant to be doing. Um, and there are people in the world that really need to hear the story that you're telling, then, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep at it. And the thing about my story is that, you know, I didn't have a really, really hit book um, until my 34th book, my 34th book hit the top 20 on Amazon, um, you know, top 20 books, on the whole Amazon platform, which was- Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I, I maxed out an international bestseller in three categories in four countries, but 20, top 20 overall of Amazon is, different, is a different story. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. But that was my 34th book. I wrote 33 books before that that didn't come you know, close to the, the top 20. But if I hadn't have written those 33 books, I never would have been able to write book number 34. And so, I, you know, I'm just, I'm so, you just never know, you know, what's the thing that's going to, you know, it's going to kick you over the edge, that's going to, you know, push your business forward. And, you know, you've just got to, you've just got to be prepared to, to do the work, I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. In a previous conversation, um, you and I had gotten into something and then I know you had a, a rainstorm going on there down there in Kiwiland and our connection got cut off. So I'm going to bring this back because I really wanted to get into this. Uh, you know, we've discussed your journey of, um, of you know, dealing with your uh, vision issues and how that challenged you with being an archaeologist, how it led you into your writing journey and all these other sorts of things. And you've also shared with us how due to this, there are certain things that made you um, a bit disconnected from things. Like, for example, as many people do know, and I knew this too, uh, New Zealand uh, is a very, as you say, sporting society. And that's something that you really didn't get to be a part of. Um, I didn't get to be a part of sports in, in my, you know, growing up because I was labeled a smart kid and nobody liked me. 
so yeah and uh and so and what kind of brought me to where my fictional interests are is i spent a lot of time in the library it's like i would um i would uh I, 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 people suspected this at the time, and I'm going to admit it now. I used to fake injuries and illnesses so that I wouldn't have to go on a playground. I could stay in the library and read the encyclopedias. I think we would have been best friends because basically that was exactly what I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah, I had a minor issue. Uh, might've been, uh, it might've been uh, like a minor sprained ankle or something. I'm not sure what it was. It's the type of thing where in today's day and age, you basically see a doctor and they give you a pill and you go on with life. I milked that thing for three freaking months. Good job. <laughs> yes. Yes. One of my, one of my great achievements. So, uh, <laughs> so, so on, so on the one hand, I think that as far as, and, and a lot of creatives do find themselves sort of on the outside looking in. And I think that applies to a lot of entrepreneurs as well. Uh, you hear story after story of people who start their own businesses, become entrepreneurs, who will tell the stories about how they did work for a company and they were branded unemployable, uh, couldn't get in line with the mission, troublemaker, uh, didn't respect the organizational chart, which yes, I, I raise my hand to all those things and I'm, and I'm happy about it. So uh, we all have that story and especially those of us in the entrepreneurial world, I think. In general, what can any entrepreneur learn from your story above and beyond anything we've already shared? Oh, I like this question. Um, there's a couple of things and I think it sort of comes back to what, what we were talking about, about, you know, being the kid in the library reading books. Um, yes. You know, and to me, the, the thing I think about about story and about my story, about anyone's story, is that we, we're all the hero of our own story. And so, you know, if you think about a book that you're reading, you know, the, the plot, you know, the, 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 the bad stuff that happens, that's not something that just like happens to the, the, the hero. The heroes drive plot. And so when things change, you think, you, you know, you've got to be thinking, look, well, I'm the hero of my own story. So if things are getting bad for me, it just means that I'm not at the end of the story yet. I'm just like, I'm approaching, you know, the battle with the, the, the big bad guy. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how I view my whole life. Like when, yeah, when things go wrong, I think, look, well, it's just, you know, it's just not, it's not the end yet. You know, I've still got, you know, something big and exciting that's, you know, just around the corner. And I think that's a really great attitude to have. And I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs kind of relate to because, you know, we've all been kicked back. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, being an entrepreneur with a disability, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I've gone through that maybe, you know, aren't. when we talk about disability, a lot, a lot of the things that, um, that people who are disabled uh, say, and one of them that's really important is that often it feels as though it, we have to work twice as hard to get to the same place. And I feel like that that feels very true to me. That's something that's felt very true to me in my whole life. But, you know, I, I'm prepared to work because I, you know, I believe that I'm the heroine and, um, yes. and, you know, heroine's got to, got to work and she's got to go through hell and she's got to come back up. And in the end, it, you know, everything works out, you know, works out all good. And yeah. And so I think that's really important. And the other interesting thing to talk about is um, we talk about the, 
one idea that is, is gained a lot of ground quite recently is what we call the social model of disability. And this is this idea that actually what makes people disabled isn't their condition. So what makes me disabled isn't actually my wonky eyes, but it's the, the structure and the attitudes of society that means that a person with wonky eyes can't do these things that, or, you know, is kicked back from doing these things that, you know, a person who doesn't have wonky eyes can do. And so I think that's, that. I think it's this really interesting idea that actually it's not... You know, because growing up, I often would think, you know, something was wrong with me. And, you know, if I could just be normal, if I could just be not this weird kid, if I could just, you know, just see normally, then, you know, things would be better. And, you know, I dealt a lot with bullying and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, that was a big thing for me. I was kind of coming to terms with this idea that, you know, I would probably never be normal. And, that's okay and you know what even is normal anyway and right. yeah and so i love this idea that actually if you change the if you change the structure of you know and the attitudes of society and of you know of your company in general and of you know of your products and the way you interact with the world then then no one's disabled and i, I just i love that that makes me so happy Here's another thing that has come to mind just thinking about our conversations and me looking at your life story is I'm wondering if sometimes we place the wrong focus on things. So let's say somebody has a disability, somebody has a challenge, somebody isn't as good as something. What do we what do we do about that? Let me give you an example for myself. I mentioned earlier um, I was labeled the smart kid. Uh, they gave me an IQ test. I came out at a 138, which put me in a high range of what by their metrics was considered gifted. I apparently was so bored in the first grade that they moved me to the second grade right in the middle of the year and actually did a big ceremony over it. Oh, that really helped my social life. But anyway, um, I uh, I could sail through just about anything. I there was very little that the educational system uh, coming up through the standard uh, curriculum in the United States. Uh, there's very little I couldn't take on. I could I could handle English. I could handle literature. I could handle. I loved history, uh, civics. Uh, I liked I liked geology. Believe it or not, I'm not really big into science, but I really loved that that discipline. I like chemistry, although I wasn't very good at uh, doing the equations. I, I basically just like to blow stuff up. Um, I, uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, biology, as long as we weren't speaking about blood, because blood makes me sick. So I could do pretty much anything except for mathematics. I can do basic mathematics, like your addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. I can more or less do that in my head, because I know how to round things and create approximations and then, and then fine tune them down. Uh, however, when it comes to things like algebra, geography, geog geometry, trigonometry, things like that, I can't solve an isosceles, an isosceles trapezoid for X. I don't even know if that I don't even know if that's possible. And I don't even know if I'm not mixing like two or three of those variations of mathematics altogether. So fast forward to when I'm in the 11th grade and I'm getting the, I'm, uh, I've applied for all these, what we in the States call advanced placement courses, where the same class you take in high school also gives you college credit. Uh, the same day that I got the, uh, 
the same day they sent home the paperwork for me to enroll in the advanced, advanced placement courses, they also sent the paperwork from a different department about how I was absolutely failing Algebra 2. When we see somebody who is really good at certain things and has a challenge, whether they just, have, they just struggle with it or they have a documentable disability or what have you, do we focus more on trying to fix what's broke or accentuate what works? Absolutely, 100%, you got to accentuate what, what works, because really, nothing's broken. And I think that's really, really, really important. Like, yeah, no, nothing's broken except society. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and it, cause that, you know, looking at your situation, I actually had something really, really similar where um, sixth form in university, which I think is uh, 12th grade for you guys. Um, Pretty close, give or, yeah, give or take, yeah. Yeah, around there. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I was top of every single class except mathematics where I was flunking out. And they, we, I had a conversation with my, my mother and the dean of my year, and he's basically telling me that I would really struggle with my intended degree if I didn't know how to do maths. And my mum was saying, you know, look, she's top of every other class. If she's not doing well in maths, can't we just take her out of maths and, yeah. uh, and give her a class that she, you know, she'd actually love? And my mum won because um, she's right. amazing and I ended up doing art history instead of maths which was uh -huh. brilliant and you know I've never never felt the need in my life to know how to find the thing of an isosceles triangle so yeah <laughs> so you know so it was fine it was the right decision and you know you know for anyone um, with a disability, this is super, super important because, you know, especially if you have something like me where you have a, um, a visible disability. So, you know, someone looks at me, they can immediately see that something's wrong with my eyes. And, um, you know, that's true of a lot of people, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, um, you know, all, all other kinds of disabilities like that. If someone looks at you, they can tell. And often they only see that. And, uh -huh. you know, it, We've, you know, we're all we're all complicated people. We've all got you know interesting lives and you know different desires and things we're good at and things we're not so good at. And you know, if all you see is yeah, if all you see is that that surface thing, and then you make all these judgments based on that surface thing, then you know that's how we end up with um, people with disabilities have something yeah. like like ten times less likely to to be in work, um, you know, pay, in paid employment. Um, you know they have a high suicide rate. All these, all these awful things, and you know it kind of comes from that that surface judgment. And and the interesting thing is, you know, often a, a lot of studies have shown that um, people with disabilities are some of the the best, some of the most productive workers, some of the most loyal employees you could ever have, some of the most driven entrepreneurs that you can ever imagine because of this. We have to work twice as hard to get to the same place. Yeah. So we, we're just like, bring it on. Yeah. Well, uh, and again, and here's another reason why I don't really fault my parents, because I understand what was going on. I believe that my mother dealt with a lot of this, too. Uh, her passion growing up was uh, beauty. She wanted to be a beautician. Uh, you know, somebody who did hair and things like that. That's something that to this day she really loves doing. Uh, 
I've spoken with people who knew her when she was growing up, and I haven't heard a lot of stories about her being much of a scholar. So I can imagine that uh, she was spending uh, so much time studying and getting enthused about the idea of doing people's hair. I, I become aware that she is a teenager. She entered and actually won some contests. Um, I've heard a story that there may have been a scholarship available for her or something like that. And I can imagine her, people saying, well, look at this, you got a, you got a C in English. What, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And you wanna do hair? You can't even pass an English class? And, uh, and I know my dad had a lot of different interests, which uh, were different than what he ended up doing as a career. And I can also see a scenario where he might have gotten a similar message. And I believe that that was handed down from their parents and then their parents before them and so on and so forth. So what is interesting, and I've had clients who do this type of work, and I fully believe it, that a lot of the conflicts that we have in our lives and a lot of the things where we may through no fault of our own, come up short uh, in dealing with others are simply us replaying out patterns that happened a thousand years ago. So, um, Steph, have you ever had a had an argument with your husband? Not very many, to be honest. Chances are, if you were to look into this, you uh, would find out that you are having the same argument that your great-grandmother had with your great-grandfather for the same reason. It would not surprise me. It's because, it's because how these patterns keep coming down, and it's recognizing the patterns and breaking them. I know that uh, you know one day I believe I'll be fortunate now of children of my own, and uh, if I and if I have one who's no good in uh, no good in history, but he's uh, brilliant in mathematics or she's uh, an awesome chemist, I'm not going to say, well, I'm not sending you to the Einstein school so you can be better at chemistry when you can't tell me the names of the United States presidents in order. Because I recognize that, uh, that, that her brilliance is going to be in, well, you know, for me, it was blowing things up, but she might actually want to create life-saving medicines. Exactly. And, you know, if, if, we, if we tell all the people who want to create life-saving medicines, well, you can't do that until you can name all the U.S. presidents. Well, that's, you know, yeah. it's a bit, that's a bit silly. <laughs> and that's kind of on us. And I, I think you're completely right about the patterns. And, you know, often when people are cruel um, to us, it, all it is is a reflection of, you know, things that they, you know, it's much more about them than it is about us. But it, yeah. doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And I, and, I, and I also believe and I also believe that there's validity to well I'm doing it for their own good and they'll thank me later. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I'm not I'm not, I'm not thanking anybody for that. Believe me, I'm not. And I've made yeah. that clear too. Uh, what I am doing is recognizing that uh, that is something that is I believe an endemic in society, regardless of where you live. And uh, you know, like let's say uh, you know someone in your situation where you had you know, you have issues with your site, there, you know, somebody may came al come along and say, well, we got to do something about the site issue, but what if you could uh, do more by just focusing on something you're really good at? Like, uh, archaeology is going to be a challenge for you, but damn, you can write. I mean, you're top 20 in all of Amazon. Yeah. You, do a, you do a book every two months. I think we have an idea where your contribution to the world is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it took me a little, it took me a little bit of time to figure that out. And, you know, I, I'm exactly where I want to be. And, you know, the years I spent, 
pursuing archaeology as a career um, were, were not wasted whatsoever. And I use a lot of the knowledge that I gained in my books. You know, there's often a lot of sort of historical things and, you know, kind of secret spaces and a lot of archaeologists uh, wandering around. And, you, you know, so none of that is ever wasted. Um, you know, like none of the searching is ever wasted. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what's also interesting, too, is, uh, you know, we can look at we can look at uh, we can look at behavior patterns through generations. We can also look at uh, the science, uh, for example. My issue with math mathematics could be genetic. There is a there, there's a condition out there. It's called uh, I, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it right. I can spell it. It's uh, dyscalculia. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. The idea is it's just a difficulty in learning or comprehending arithmetic, uh, which can come down to difficulty in understanding numbers or how to use them or something like that. Uh, to be really good in mathematics, you have to have a mind that focuses on logic because it is based on logic. Uh, there are those who are more creative than logical, so that might not be a career path for them. And when we look at this dyscalculia, the, um, if I'm, again, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, there are actually, there have actually been neurological studies that show, and I'm reading off my screen right now because I looked it up, uh, so I have it right in front of me. I'm gonna read this from the Wikipedia. It's associated with dysfunction in a region around the intraparietal sulcus and potentially also in the frontal lobe. And it can also occur in people from across the whole IQ range. So it doesn't mean you're stupid. And it can also accompany difficulties with time, measurement, and spatial reasoning. And there are estimates that between 3 and 6% of the population have this. There's also correlations between that and ADHD, uh, Turner syndrome, and spina bifida, of all things. Interesting. So now, so now we're getting into neuroscience. We're getting into how the brain works. We're getting into physiology. Um, spina bifida has to do with your spine, and that can impact your mathematical ability. Wow. Funny how things are interrelated. Yeah, isn't the, isn't the human body just fascinating and the human mind and just I, yeah i just love it yeah yeah so yeah so this is this is where being informed on things can be helpful i haven't taken an assessment to determine whether i suffer this but i can uh, but i can tell you that there are a lot of things if you look at the common symptoms of it that actually do uh that do apply to me uh I mean, I'm not going to take up much of our time to do it, but for in instance, uh, one of them is difficulty with choreographed dance steps. That's me. <laughs> um, musical notation. I can create music in my mind, but I can't write it. Uh, let's see. Uh, another one is inability to concentrate on mentally intensive tasks. That comes and goes with me. There are times I can concentrate for three days straight, and there are times that I can't even see the words on the paper. Uh, here's oh here's another one mistaken recollection of names poor name and face retrieval and may substitute names beginning with the same letter I tell people this all the time in order for me to remember your name if you're somebody I know I have to see you on two separate occasions and say your name in both of those occasions before I'll remember your name I'll remember your face I'll I might remember the conversation we're having today, word for word, 20 years from now at random. But your name I may struggle with. Don't take that personally. I won't. Oh, that's really yeah. interesting. 
That's really, really interesting. We have facial um, and like like recognizing people. That's always a really interesting one for me because obviously I really struggle with this because I can't see people. So I can't, I don't have like the visual reference. And so the people I tend to remember, usually they have really a new, they have really interesting voices. Like I, I remember them by their voice. Yeah. Um, or, um, like like if I'm in a networking event or something like that, I will sort of, you know, and I don't know anyone in the room, I will sort of immediately try to head for people with really, like, really out, uh, standout outfits. Um, and yes. so, I, so, so if I've talked to that person and I remember, oh, she's in that really interesting, you know, um, that, that really bright... Um, brightly patterned shirt i can then go and find the brightly patterned shirt woman and again and so it's kind of it's kind of easier to remember than than faces which tend to often yeah. sort of look the same right yeah 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 so now, yeah, now, yeah now you're literally colorblind um yeah. Yeah. But that term is also used for people who um i mean so you say you view the world through 50 shades of gray and there are a lot of folks out there who can discern colors but if they put two you know, if they put two components of an outfit together, but they're both gray, they can manage to mismatch them because, <laughs> because they just they just don't have that level of perception. Some people see colors very vividly. Some yeah. see them to see them and some don't see them at all. I mean, it's a range. Yeah. And, and then there's different types of colorblindness as well. Like it's very, very common, especially in men, to have two, two color colorblindness where it's like just two colors that you can't see. Yeah, um, and and that's very common, and it's it, weirdly it's a Y chromosome thing, so it's most common in men. But mine, my condition is very different. Um, yeah, it's it's just all yeah. The the colorblindness thing is really interesting because there's actually some um, research that's been done at the moment. There is a, a flock of sheep in Israel that have my condition, and they've been cured using a um, what is it uh, gene genetic you, you, yeah using a genetic technique um they, they've been cured they've cured this flock of sheep and this is they're starting human trials with this quite soon um first of three rounds of human trials and it might be 10 years before this even hits the market if it if it can even you know if it can even work but it's a really interesting thing because i you know my whole life i have never considered the possibility that i might be able to one day actually see colors like that's just never been a possibility right and sort of it's weird to think that suddenly it it, it could be and that's just a profoundly strange thing to approach yeah Exactly. Exactly. So the whole point of going through this and telling some of our childhood stories and everything else is I want to illustrate how uh, and since I and since I had you here, um, you know, part of the uh, you know, part of the issue that I think people face is they may not recognize the extent to which these societal things that get passed down from one generation to the next uh, keep uh, impacting us. And I also would like if possible, for all the entrepreneurs, this is really the reason I had you on, Steph, is I wanted to show people that you can pretty much do, I don't want to say do anything, but you can do that thing that you really feel is the intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience when you take the approach of looking at the possible 
and what is working well, what is at that intersection, and what can you thrive at without getting too stuck on, well, the things you aren't so good at. So like me, for example, as an entrepreneur, uh, the day I actually make a cold call is the day I jump off my balcony while giving myself a lobotomy without anesthesia. <laughs> but there's a lot of things in entrepreneurship I am good with. And uh, as far as like making connections that lead to business, no, I'm not going to pick up the phone and call somebody at random. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send, uh, send them a, uh, a little note through Messenger that says, hey, I have an idea. I want to run it by you. Can I get on your calendar for 10 minutes? Exactly. So I, so I have my way of doing it. And, uh, and what I want people to see is there are many ways to succeed. We all have challenges, but we all have exceptional brilliances. And it's a matter of seeing what may be in the way of you recognizing that and getting a new focus so that you can. Exactly. And, and to remember that you're the hero or the heroine of your own story. And so, you know, if things are tough and you feel like it, you know, nothing's working, then it just means that you're, you know, you're in the the climax of the story and yes you know, you're about to fight the big bad guy so yeah you know you know i, I feel really bad here because now uh, i mean uh, I, have to, I have my poor character his name's sebastian by the way i'm gonna have to beat the hell out of him you are i'm really for people, sorry for people to get interested in him and part of him's autobiographical so this is this is going to be a this is going to be a real thing but i also know that uh that's how i'm going to get his message out Exactly. Exactly. You got. You got to go through the the bad stuff to you know to get to the amazing things. Yeah. All right. So uh, we are at the top of the hour. Uh, very cathartic hour. Let me tell you. Uh, let's say uh, you know people are leaning in right now and they want to discover more about how you can be their sensei in business success. Uh, what do you have for them? Uh, I believe you mentioned that there may be some sort of gift you have for us or something along those lines or how they contact you. Just tell us what you want people to do. Absolutely. So if you head to my website, which is www.rageagainstthemanuscript.com slash hello, all right. you, can, you can download a free ebook, which is all about kind of making it, it's called Unleash the Beast, releasing your inner writing monster. And it's all about kind of building writing and creativity into your daily life. And I think it's really cool. And that will also put you on my mailing list where, you know, there's um, a special price on my self-publishing book and my self-publishing course. And so as, as well as tons and tons of free information and free resources all about how to, sell, you know, how to tell your story, how to self-publish, how to be really successful doing it. And, you know, so if you, you know, if you're interested in, you know, telling your story and self-publishing and maybe, you know, writing novels about vampires like I do and, you know, doing really well doing it, then, yeah, I would definitely check out my website. That URL is worth it, uh, www.rageagainstthemanuscript.com forward slash hello, simply for our listeners, because especially our Allurophile listeners who are going to get to see a photograph of Steph with her Siamese cat. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's Lord Nelson. Lord Nelson. Oh, I love it. I, I, uh, I, I you, know, you know what? I don't like it. I love it. It's, it's great. Lord Nelson. Awesome. All right. So Steph Green of RageAgainstTheManuscript.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you. It's been awesome to be here and I will come back anytime. 
Absolutely. We'll have to have you back. So we trust you, everybody enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>